Book Seven, Chapter Three of Les Miserables, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, April two thousand eight. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Book Seven, Chapter Three: A Tempest in a Skull. The reader has no doubt already divined that Monsieur Madeleine is no other than Jean Valjean. We have already gazed into the depths of this conscience. The moment has now come when we must take another look into it. We do so not without emotion and trepidation. There is nothing more terrible in existence than this sort of contemplation. The eye of the spirit can nowhere find more dazzling brilliance and more shadow than in man. It can fix itself on no other thing which is more formidable, more complicated, more mysterious, and more infinite. There is a spectacle more grand than the sea. It is heaven. There is a spectacle more grand than heaven. It is the inmost recesses of the soul. To make the poem of the human conscience, were it only with reference to a single man, were it only in connection with the basest of men, would be to blend all epics into one superior and definitive epic. Conscience is the chaos of chimeras, of lusts and of temptations, the furnace of dreams, the lair of ideas of which we are ashamed. It is the pandemonium of sophisms. It is the battlefield of the passions. Penetrate at certain hours past the livid face of a human being who is engaged in reflection, and look behind, gaze into that soul, gaze into that obscurity. There, beneath that external silence, battles of giants like those recorded in Homer are in progress. Skirmishes of dragons and hydras and swarms of phantoms, as in Milton, visionary circles, as in Dante. What a solemn thing is this infinity! which every man bears within him, and which he measures with despair against the caprices of his brain and the actions of his life. Alighieri one day met with a sinister-looking door, before which he hesitated. Here is one before us, upon whose threshold we hesitate. Let us enter, nevertheless. We have but little to add to what the reader already knows of what had happened to Jean Valjean, after the adventure with little Gervais. From that moment forth he was, as we have seen, a totally different man. What the bishop had wished to make of him, that he carried out. It was more than a transformation, it was a transfiguration. He succeeded in disappearing, sold the bishop's silver, reserving only the candlesticks as a souvenir, crept from town to town, traversed France, came to M. sur M., conceived the idea which we have mentioned, accomplished what we have related, succeeded in rendering himself safe from seizure and inaccessible, and thenceforth established at M. sur M., happy in feeling his conscience, saddened by the past and the first half of his existence, belied by the last, he lived in peace, reassured and hopeful, having henceforth only two thoughts, to conceal his name and to sanctify his life, to escape men and to return to God. These two thoughts were so closely intertwined in his mind that they formed but a single one there. 
both were equally absorbing and imperative, and ruled his slightest actions. In general, they conspired to regulate the conduct of his life, they turned him towards the gloom, they rendered him kindly and simple, they counseled him to the same things. Sometimes, however, they conflicted. In that case, as the reader will remember, the man whom all the country of M. Surem called Monsieur Madeleine, did not hesitate to sacrifice the first to the second, his security to his virtue. Thus, in spite of all his reserve and all his prudence, he had preserved the bishop's candlesticks, worn mourning for him, summoned and interrogated all the little Savoyards who passed that way, collected information regarding the families at Feverot, and saved old Fauchelevent's life despite the disquieting insinuations of Javert. It seemed, as we have already remarked, as though he thought, following the example of all those who have been wise, holy, and just, that his first duty was not towards himself. At the same time it must be confessed, nothing just like this had yet presented itself. Never had the two ideas which governed the unhappy man, whose sufferings we are narrating, engaged in so serious a struggle. He understood this confusedly, but profoundly, at the very first words pronounced by Javert, when the latter entered his study. At the moment when that name, which he had buried beneath so many layers, was so strangely articulated, he was struck with stupor, and as though intoxicated with the sinister eccentricity of his destiny, and through this stupor he felt that shudder which precedes great shocks, he bent like an oak at the approach of a storm, like a soldier at the approach of an assault. He felt shadows filled with thunders and lightnings descending upon his head. As he listened to Javert, the first thought which occurred to him was to go, to run and denounce himself, to take that Champ-Mathieu out of prison and place himself there. This was as painful and as poignant as an incision in the living flesh. Then it passed away, and he said to himself, We will see, we will see. He repressed this first generous instinct, and recoiled before heroism. It would be beautiful, no doubt, after the bishop's holy words, after so many years of repentance and abnegation, in the midst of a penitence admirably begun, if this man had not flinched for an instant, even in the presence of so terrible a conjecture, but had continued to walk with the same step towards this yawning precipice, at the bottom of which lay heaven, that would have been beautiful, but it was not thus. We must render an account of the things which went on in this soul, and we can only tell what there was there. He was carried away at first by the instinct of self-preservation. He rallied all his ideas in haste, stifled his emotions, took into consideration Javert's presence, that great danger postponed all decision with the firmness of terror, shook off thought as to what he had to do, and resumed his calmness as a warrior picks up his buckler. He remained in this state during the rest of the day, a whirlwind within, a profound tranquillity without. He took no preservative measures, as they may be called. Everything was still confused, and jostling together in his brain. His trouble was so great that he could not perceive the form of a single idea distinctly, and he could have told nothing about himself, except that he had received a great blow. 
He repaired to Fantine's bed of suffering as usual, and prolonged his visit, through a kindly instinct, telling himself that he must behave thus, and recommend her well to the sisters, in case he should be obliged to be absent himself. He had a vague feeling that he might be obliged to go to Arras, and without having the least in the world made up his mind to this trip, he said to himself that being as he was, beyond the shadows of any suspicion, there could be nothing out of the way in being a witness to what was to take place, and he engaged the Tilbury from Scaufflaire in order to be prepared in any event. He dined with a good deal of appetite. On returning to his room, he communed with himself. He examined the situation, and found it unprecedented, so unprecedented that in the midst of his reverie he rose from his chair, moved by some inexplicable impulse of anxiety, and bolted his door. He feared lest something more should enter. He was barricading himself against possibilities. A moment later he extinguished his light. It embarrassed him. It seemed to him as though he might be seen. By whom? Alas, that on which he desired to close the door had already entered. That which he desired to blind was staring him in the face. His conscience. His conscience. That is to say, God. Nevertheless, he deluded himself at first. He had a feeling of security and of solitude. The bolt once drawn, he thought himself impregnable. The candle extinguished, he felt himself invisible. Then he took possession of himself. He set his elbows on the table, leaned his head on his hand, and began to meditate in the dark. Where do I stand? Am not I dreaming? What have I heard? Is it really true that I have seen that Javert, and that he spoke to me in that manner? Who can that Champ Mathieu be? So he resembles me. Is it possible? When I reflect that yesterday I was so tranquil, and so far from suspecting anything. What was I doing yesterday at this hour? What is there in this incident? What will the end be? What is to be done? This was the torment in which he found himself. His brain had lost its power of retaining ideas. They passed like waves, and he clutched his brow in both hands to arrest them. Nothing but anguish extricated itself from this tumult, which overwhelmed his will and his reason, and from which he sought to draw proof and resolution. His head was burning. He went to the window and threw it wide open. There were no stars in the sky. He returned and seated himself at the table. The first hour passed in this manner. Gradually, however, vague outlines began to take form and to fix themselves in his meditation, and he was able to catch a glimpse with precision of the reality, not the whole situation, but some of the details. He began by recognizing the fact that, critical and extraordinary as was this situation, he was completely master of it. This only caused an increase of his stupor. Independently of the severe and religious aim which he had assigned to his actions, all that he had made up to that day had been nothing but a hole in which to bury his name. That which he had always feared most of all in his hours of self-communion, during his sleepless nights, was to ever hear that name pronounced. He had said to himself that that would be the end of all things for him, that on the day when that name made its reappearance it would cause his new life to vanish from about him, and who knows, perhaps even his new soul within him also. 
he shuddered at the very thought that this was possible. Assuredly, if any one had said to him at such moments that the hour would come when that name would ring in his ears, when the hideous words Jean Valjean would suddenly emerge from the darkness and rise in front of him, when that formidable light, capable of dissipating the mystery in which he had enveloped himself, would suddenly blaze forth above his head, and that that name would not menace him, that that light would but produce an obscurity more dense, that this rent veil would but increase the mystery, that this earthquake would solidify his edifice, that this prodigious incident would have no other result, so far as he was concerned, if so it seemed good to him, than that of rendering his existence at once clearer and more impenetrable, and that, out of his confrontation with the phantom of Jean Valjean, the good and worthy citizen, Monsieur Madeleine, would emerge more honoured, more peaceful, and more respected than ever. If any one had told him that, he would have tossed his head and regarded the words as those of a madman. Well, all this was precisely what had just come to pass. All that accumulation of impossibilities was a fact, and God had permitted these wild fancies to become real things. His reverie continued to grow clearer. He came more and more to an understanding of his position. It seemed to him that he had but just waked up from some inexplicable dream, and that he found himself slipping down a declivity in the middle of the night, erect, shivering, holding back all in vain, on the very brink of the abyss. He distinctly perceived in the darkness a stranger, a man unknown to him, whom destiny had mistaken for him, and whom she was thrusting into the gulf in his stead, in order that the gulf might close once more, it was necessary that some one, himself or that other man, should fall into it. He had only let things take their course. The light became complete, and he acknowledged this to himself, that his place was empty in the galleys, that do what he would, it was still awaiting him, that the theft from little Gervais had led him back to it, that this vacant place would await him, and draw him on until he filled it, that this was inevitable and fatal. And then he said to himself that at this moment he had a substitute, that it appeared that a certain Champ-Mathieu had that ill luck, and that, as regards himself, being present in the galleys in the person of that Champ-Mathieu, present in society under the name of Monsieur Madeleine, he had nothing more to fear, provided that he did not prevent men from sealing over the head of that Champ-Mathieu this stone of infamy which, like the stone of the sepulchre, falls once, never to rise again. All this was so strange and so violent that there suddenly took place in him that indescribable movement which no man feels more than two or three times in the course of his life, a sort of convulsion of the conscience which stirs up all that there is doubtful in the heart, which is composed of irony, of joy and of despair, and which may be called an outburst of inward laughter." he hastily relighted his candle. "'Well, what then?' he said to himself. "'What am I afraid of? What is there in all that for me to think about? I am safe. All is over. I had but one partly open door through which my past might invade my life, and behold that door is walled up forever. That Javert, who has been annoying me so long, that terrible instinct which seemed to have divined me, which had divined me. Good God!' 
and which followed me everywhere, that frightful hunting-dog, always making a point at me, is thrown off the scent, engaged elsewhere, absolutely turned from the trail. Henceforth he is satisfied, he will leave me in peace, he has his Jean Valjean. Who knows? It is even probable that he will wish to leave town. And all this has been brought about without any aid from me, and I count for nothing in it. Ah, but where is the misfortune in this? Upon my honour, people would think, to see me, that some catastrophe had happened to me. After all, if it does bring harm to someone, that is not my fault in the least. It is Providence which has done it all. It is because it wishes it so to be, evidently. Have I the right to disarrange what it has arranged? What do I ask now? Why should I meddle? It does not concern me. What I am not satisfied. But what more do I want? The goal to which I have aspired for so many years, the dream of my nights, the object of my prayers to heaven, security, I have now attained. It is God who wills it. I can do nothing against the will of God. And why does God will it? in order that I may continue what I have begun, that I may do good, that I may one day be a grand and encouraging example, that it may be said at last that a little happiness has been attached to the penance which I have undergone, and to that virtue to which I have returned. Really I do not understand why I was afraid, a little while ago to enter the house of that good cure, and to ask his advice. This is evidently what he would have said to me. It is settled, let things take their course, let the good God do as he likes. Thus did he address himself in the depths of his own conscience, bending over what may be called his own abyss. He rose from his chair, and began to pace the room. Come, said he, let us think no more about it, my resolve is taken. But he felt no joy. Quite the reverse. One can no more prevent thought from recurring to an idea than one can the sea from returning to the shore. The sailor calls it the tide, the guilty man calls it remorse. God upheaves the soul as he does the ocean. After the expiration of a few moments, do what he would, he resumed the gloomy dialogue in which it was he who spoke, and he who listened, saying that which he would have preferred to ignore, and listened to that which he would have preferred not to hear, yielding to that mysterious power which said to him, Think, as it said to another condemned man, two thousand years ago, March on. Before proceeding further, and in order to make ourselves fully understood, let us insist upon one necessary observation. It is certain that people do talk to themselves. There is no living being who has not done it. It may even be said that the word is never a more magnificent mystery than when it goes from thought to conscience within a man, and when it returns from conscience to thought. It is in this sense only that the words so often employed in this chapter, he said, he exclaimed, must be understood. One speaks to one's self, talks to one's self, exclaims to one's self, without breaking the external silence. There is a great tumult. Everything about us talks except the mouth. The realities of the soul are none the less realities, because they are not visible and palpable. So he asked himself where he stood. He interrogated himself upon that settled resolve. He confessed to himself that all that he had just arranged in his mind was monstrous, 
that to let things take their course, to let the good God do as he liked, was simply horrible, to allow this error of fate and of men to be carried out, not to hinder it, to lend himself to it through his silence, to do nothing, in short, was to do everything, that this was hypocritical baseness in the last degree, that it was a base, cowardly, sneaking, abject, hideous crime. For the first time in eight years the wretched man had just tasted the bitter savour of an evil thought and of an evil action. He spit it out with disgust. He continued to question himself. He asked himself severely what he had meant by this. My object is attained. He declared to himself that his life really had an object. But what object? To conceal his name? To deceive the police? Was it for so petty a thing that he had done all that he had done? Had he not another and grand object, which was the true one? To save not his person, but his soul? To become honest and good once more? To be a just man? Was it not that, above all, that alone, which he had always desired, which the bishop had enjoined upon him, to shut the door on his past? But he was not shutting it. Great God, he was reopening it by committing an infamous action. He was becoming a thief once more, and the most odious of thieves. He was robbing another of his existence, his life, his peace, his place in the sunshine. He was becoming an assassin. He was murdering, morally murdering, a wretched man. He was inflicting on him that frightful living death, that death beneath the open sky, which is called the galleys. On the other hand, to surrender himself to save that man, struck down with so melancholy an error, to resume his own name, to become once more out of duty, the convict Jean Valjean, that was, in truth, to achieve his resurrection, and to close forever that hell whence he had just emerged, to fall back there in appearance, was to escape from it in reality. This must be done. He had done nothing if he did not do all this. His whole life was useless. All his penitence was wasted. There was no longer any need of saying, What is the use? He felt that the bishop was there, that the bishop was present, all the more because he was dead, that the bishop was gazing fixedly at him, that henceforth Mayor Madeleine, with all his virtues, would be abominable to him and that the convict Jean Valjean would be pure and admirable in his sight, that men beheld his mask, but that the bishop saw his face, that men saw his life, but that the bishop beheld his conscience. So he must go to Arras, deliver the false Jean Valjean, and denounce the real one. Alas, that was the greatest of sacrifices, the most poignant of victories, the last step to take, but it must be done." Sad fate, he would enter into sanctity, only in the eyes of God, when he returned to infamy, in the eyes of men. Well, said he, let us decide upon this, let us do our duty, let us save this man. He uttered these words aloud, without perceiving that he was speaking aloud. He took his books, verified them, and put them in order. He flung in the fire a bundle of bills which he had against petty and embarrassed tradesmen. He wrote and sealed a letter, and on the envelope it might have been read, had there been any one in his chamber at the moment, to Monsieur Lafitte, banker, Rue d'Artois, Paris. He drew from his secretary a pocket-book, 
which contained several banknotes, and the passport of which he had made use that same year when he went to the elections. Any one who had seen him during the execution of these various acts, into which there entered such grave thought, would have had no suspicion of what was going on within him. Only occasionally did his lips move, at other times he raised his head and fixed his gaze upon some point of the wall, as though there existed at that point something which he wished to elucidate or interrogate. When he had finished the letter to Monsieur Lafitte, he put it into his pocket, together with the pocket-book, and began his walk once more. His reverie had not swerved from its course. He continued to see his duty clearly, written in luminous letters, which flamed before his eyes, and changed its place as he altered the direction of his glance. Go, tell your name, denounce yourself. In the same way he beheld, as though they had passed before him in visible forms, the two ideas which had, up to that time, formed the double rule of his soul, the concealment of his name, the sanctification of his life. For the first time they appeared to him as absolutely distinct, and he perceived the distance which separated them. He recognized the fact that one of these ideas was necessarily good, while the other might become bad, that the first was self-devotion, and that the other was personality, that the one said, My neighbor, and that the other said, Myself, that one emanated from the light, and the other from darkness. They were antagonistic, he saw them in conflict, in proportion as he meditated. They grew before the eyes of his spirit, they had now attained colossal statures, and it seemed to him that he beheld within himself, in that infinity of which we were recently speaking, in the midst of the darkness and the lights, a goddess and a giant contending. He was filled with terror, but it seemed to him that the good thought was getting the upper hand. He felt that he was on the brink of the second decisive crisis of his conscience and of his destiny that the bishop had marked the first phase of his new life, and that Champ-Mathieu marked the second, after the grand crisis, the grand test. But the fever, allayed for an instant, gradually resumed possession of him. A thousand thoughts traversed his mind, but they continued to fortify him in his resolution. One moment he said to himself that he was, perhaps, taking the matter too keenly, that, after all, this Champ-Mathieu, was not interesting, and that he had actually been guilty of theft. He answered himself, If this man has, indeed, stolen a few apples, that means a month in prison. It is a long way from that to the galleys. And who knows? Did he steal? Has it been proved? The name of Jean Valjean overwhelms him, and seems to dispense with proofs. Do not the attorneys for the crown always proceed in this manner? He is supposed to be a thief because he is known to be a convict. In another instant the thought had occurred to him that, when he denounced himself, the heroism of his deed might, perhaps, be taken into consideration, and his honest life for the last seven years, and what he had done for the district, and that they would have mercy on him. But this supposition vanished very quickly, and he smiled bitterly as he remembered that the theft of the forty sous from little Gervais put him in the position of a man guilty of a second offence after conviction, that this affair would certainly come up, and according to the precise terms of the law, would render him liable to penal servitude for life. He turned aside from all illusions, 
detached himself more and more from earth, and sought strength and consolation elsewhere. He told himself that he must do his duty, that perhaps he should not be more unhappy after doing his duty than after having avoided it, that if he allowed things to take their own course, if he remained at M. sur M., his consideration, his good name, his good works, the deference and veneration paid to him, his charity, his wealth, his popularity, his virtue, would be seasoned with a crime. And what would be the taste of all these holy things when bound up with this hideous thing? While, if he accomplished his sacrifice, a celestial idea would be mingled with the galleys, the post, the iron necklet, the green cap, unceasing toil, and pitiless shame. At length he told himself that it must be so, that his destiny was thus allotted, that he had not authority to alter the arrangements made on high, that in any case he must make his choice, virtue without, and abomination within, or holiness within, and infamy without. The stirring of these lugubrious ideas did not cause his courage to fail, but his brain grow weary. He began to think of other things, of indifferent matters, in spite of himself. The veins in his temples throbbed violently. He still paced to and fro. Midnight sounded first from the parish church, then from the town hall. He counted the twelve strokes of the two clocks, and compared the sound of the two bells. He recalled in this connection the fact that, a few days previously, he had seen in an ironmonger's shop an ancient clock for sale, upon which was written the name, Antoine Albin de Romainville. He was cold. He lighted a small fire. It did not occur to him to close the window. In the meantime he had relapsed into his stupor. He was obliged to make a tolerably vigorous effort to recall what had been the subject of his thoughts before midnight had struck. He finally succeeded in doing this. "'Ah, yes,' he said to himself. I had resolved to inform against myself. And then, all of a sudden, he thought of Fantine. "'Hold,' said he, "'and what about that poor woman?' Here a fresh crisis declared itself. Fantine, by appearing thus abruptly in his reverie, produced the effect of an unexpected ray of light. It seemed to him as though everything about him were undergoing a change of aspect. He exclaimed, "'Ah, but I have hitherto considered no one but myself. It is proper for me to hold my tongue, or to denounce myself, to conceal my person, or to save my soul, to be a despicable and respected magistrate, or an infamous and venerable convict. It is I, it is always I, and nothing but I. But, good God, all this is egotism. These are diverse forms of egotism. But it is egotism all the same. What if I were to think a little about others?' The highest holiness is to think of others. Come, let us examine the matter. The eye accepted, the eye effaced, the eye forgotten. What would be the result of all this? What if I denounce myself? I am arrested. This Champ Mathieu is released. I am put back in the galleys. That is well. And what then? What is going on here? Ah, here is a country, a town. Here are factories, an industry, workers, both men and women, aged grandsires, children, poor people. All this I have created, all these I provide with their living, everywhere where there is a smoking chimney. It is I who have placed the brand on the hearth and meat in the pot. I have created ease, circulation, credit. 
Before me there was nothing. I have elevated, vivified, informed with life, fecundated, stimulated, enriched the whole countryside. Lacking me, the soul is lacking. I take myself off, everything dies. And this woman, who has suffered so much, who possesses so many merits in spite of her fall, the cause of all whose misery I have unwittingly been, and that child whom I meant to go in search of, whom I have promised to her mother. Do I not also owe something to this woman, in reparation for the evil which I have done her? If I disappear, what happens? The mother dies, the child becomes what it can. That is what will take place if I denounce myself. If I do not denounce myself, come, let us see how it will be if I do not denounce myself. After putting this question to himself, he paused. He seemed to undergo a momentary hesitation and trepidation, but it did not last long, and he answered himself calmly, Well, this man is going to the galleys, it is true, but what the deuce, he has stolen. There is no use in my saying that he has not been guilty of theft, for he has. I remain here, I go on. In ten years I shall have made ten millions, I scatter them over the country, I have nothing of my own, what is that to me? It is not for myself that I am doing it. The prosperity of all goes on augmenting. Industries are aroused and animated. Factories and shops are multiplied. Families, a hundred families, a thousand families, are happy. The district becomes populated. Villages spring up where there were only farms before. Farms rise where there was nothing. Wretchedness disappears. And with wretchedness, debauchery, prostitution, theft, murder, all vices disappear, all crimes, and this poor mother rears her child, and behold a whole country, rich and honest. Ah, I was a fool, I was absurd. What was that I was saying about denouncing myself? I really must pay attention, and not be precipitate about anything. What, because it would have pleased me to play the grand and generous, this is melodrama, after all, because I should have thought of no one but myself, the idea— for the sake of saving from a punishment, a trifle exaggerated, perhaps, but just at bottom, no one knows whom. A thief, a good-for-nothing, evidently a whole countryside must perish. A poor woman must die in the hospital, a poor little girl must die in the street, like dogs. Ah, this is abominable! And without the mother, even having seen her child once more, almost without the child's having known her mother, and all that for the sake of an old wretch of an apple-thief, who most assuredly has deserved the galleys for something else, if not for that. Fine scruples indeed which save a guilty man, and sacrifice the innocent, which save an old vagabond, who has only a few years to live at most, and who will not be more unhappy in the galleys than in his hovel, and which sacrifice a whole population, mothers, wives, children. This poor little Cosette, who has no one in the world but me, and who is, no doubt, blue with cold at this moment in the den of those Thernadiers. Those peoples are rascals, and I was going to neglect my duty towards all these poor creatures, and I was going off to denounce myself, and I was about to commit that unspeakable folly. Let us put it at the worst. Suppose that there is a wrong action on my part in this, and that my conscience will reproach me for it some day, to accept, for the good of others, these reproaches, which weigh only on myself, this evil action which compromises my soul alone, in that lies self-sacrifice, 
in that alone there is virtue. He rose and resumed his march. This time he seemed to be content. Diamonds are found only in the dark places of the earth. Truths are found only in the depths of thought. It seemed to him that, after having descended into these depths, after having long groped among the darkest of these shadows, he had at last found one of these diamonds, one of these truths, and that he now held it in his hand, and he was dazzled as he gazed upon it. Yes, he thought, this is right. I am on the right road. I have the solution. I must end by holding fast to something. My resolve is taken. Let things take their course. Let us no longer vacillate. Let us no longer hang back. This is for the interest of all, not for my own. I am Madeleine, and Madeleine I remain. Woe to the man who is Jean Valjean. I am no longer he. I do not know that man. I no longer know anything. It turns out that someone is Jean Valjean at the present moment. Let him look out for himself. That does not concern me. It is a fatal name which was floating abroad in the night. If it halts and descends on a head, so much the worse for that head. He looked into the little mirror which hung above his chimney-piece, and said, Hold, it has relieved me to come to a decision. I am quite another man now. He proceeded a few paces further, then he stopped short. Come, he said, I must not flinch before any of the consequences of the resolution which I have once adopted. There are still threads which attach me to that Jean Valjean. They must be broken. In this very room there are objects which would betray me, dumb things which would bear witness against me. It is settled. All these things must disappear. He fumbled in his pocket, drew out his purse, opened it, and took out a small key. He inserted the key in a lock whose aperture could hardly be seen, so hidden was it in the most sombre tones of the design which covered the wallpaper. A secret receptacle opened, a sort of false cupboard, constructed in the angle between the wall and the chimney-piece. In this hiding-place there were some rags, a blue linen blouse, an old pair of trousers, an old knapsack, and a huge thorn cudgel, shod with iron at both ends. Those who had seen Jean Valjean at the epoch, when he passed through D, in October 1815, could easily have recognized all the pieces of this miserable outfit. He had preserved them as he had preserved the silver candlesticks, in order to remind himself continually of his starting-point. But he had concealed all that came from the galleys, and he had allowed the candlesticks which came from the bishop to be seen. He cast a furtive glance towards the door, as though he feared that it would open in spite of the bolt which fastened it. Then, with a quick and abrupt movement, he took the whole in his arms at once, without bestowing so much as a glance on the things which he had so religiously and so perilously preserved for so many years, and flung them all, rags, cudgel, knapsack, into the fire. He closed the false cupboard again, and with redoubled precautions, henceforth unnecessary, since it was now empty, he concealed the door behind a heavy piece of furniture, which he pushed in front of it. After the lapse of a few seconds, the room and the opposite wall were lighted up with a fierce, red, tremendous glow. Everything was on fire. The thorn cudgel snapped and threw its sparks to the middle of the chamber. As the knapsack was consumed, together with the hideous rags which it contained, it revealed something which sparkled in the ashes. By bending over, one could have readily recognized a coin, no doubt the forty-sous piece 
stolen from the little Savillard. He did not look at the fire, but paced back and forth with the same step. All at once his eye fell on the two silver candlesticks, which shone vaguely on the chimney-piece through the glow. Hold, he thought, the whole of Jean Valjean is still in them. They must be destroyed also. He seized the two candlesticks. There was still fire enough to allow of their being put out of shape, and converted into a sort of unrecognizable bar of metal. He bent over the hearth and warmed himself for a moment. He felt a sense of real comfort. How good warmth is, said he. He stirred the live coals with one of the candlesticks. A minute more, and they were both in the fire. At that moment it seemed to him that he heard a voice within him shouting, Jean Valjean! Jean Valjean! His hair rose upright. He became like a man who was listening to some terrible thing. Yes, that's it. Finish, said the voice. Complete what you are about. Destroy these candlesticks. Annihilate this souvenir. Forget the bishop. Forget everything. Destroy this Champmathieu. Do. That is right. Applaud yourself. So it is settled, resolved, fixed, agreed. Here is an old man who does not know what is wanted of him, who has perhaps done nothing, an innocent man, whose whole misfortune lies in your name, upon whom your name weighs like a crime, who is about to be taken for you, who will be condemned, who will finish his days in abjectness and horror. That is good. Be an honest man yourself. Remain Monsieur le Maire. Remain honourable and honoured. Enrich the town. Nourish the indigent. Rear the orphan. Live happy, virtuous, and admired. And during this time, while you are here in the midst of joy and light, there will be a man who will wear your red blouse, who will bear your name in ignominy, and who will drag your chain in the galleys. Yes, it is well arranged thus. Ah, wretch! The perspiration streamed from his brow. He fixed a haggard eye on the candlesticks. But that within him which had spoken had not finished. The voice continued. Jean Valjean, there will be around you many voices, which will make a great noise, which will talk very loud, and which will bless you, and only one which no one will hear, and which will curse you in the dark. Well, listen, infamous man, all those benedictions will fall back before they reach heaven, and only the malediction will ascend to God. This voice, feeble at first, and which had proceeded from the most obscure depths of his conscience, had gradually become startling and formidable, and he now heard it in his very ear. It seemed to him that it had detached itself from him, and that it was now speaking outside of him. He thought that he heard the last words so distinctly that he glanced around the room in a sort of terror. "'Is there any one here?' he demanded aloud, in utter bewilderment. Then he resumed with a laugh which resembled that of an idiot. "'How stupid I am! There can be no one!' There was someone, but the person who was there was of those whom the human eye cannot see. He placed the candlesticks on the chimney-piece. Then he resumed his monotonous and lugubrious tramp, which troubled the dreams of the sleeping man beneath him, and awoke him with a start. This tramping to and fro soothed, and at the same time intoxicated him. It sometimes seems, on supreme occasions, as though people moved about for the purpose of asking advice of everything that they may encounter by change of place. After the lapse of a few minutes, he no longer knew his position. He now recoiled in equal terror before both the resolutions at which he had arrived in turn. 
the two ideas which counselled him appeared to him equally fatal. What a fatality! What conjunction that that Champ Mathieu should have been taken for him, to be overwhelmed by precisely the means which Providence seemed to have employed, at first to strengthen his position. There was a moment when he reflected on the future, denounce himself, great God, deliver himself up, with immense despair he faced all that he should be obliged to leave, all that he should be obliged to take up once more. He should have to bid farewell to that existence, which was so good, so pure, so radiant, to the respect of all, to honour, to liberty. He should never more stroll in the fields, he should never more hear the birds sing in the month of May, he should never more bestow alms on the little children, he should never more experience the sweetness of having glances of gratitude and love fixed upon him. He should quit that house which he had built, that little chamber. Everything seemed charming to him at that moment. Never again should he read those books. Never more should he write on that little table of white wood, his old portress, the only servant whom he kept, would never more bring him his coffee in the morning. Great God! Instead of that, the convict gang— the iron necklet, the red waistcoat, the chain on his ankle, fatigue, the cell, the camp-bed, all those horrors which he knew so well. At his age, after having been what he was, if he were only young again, but to be addressed in his old age as thou, by any one who pleased, to be searched by the convict guard, to receive the galley sergeant's cudgelings, to wear iron-bound shoes on his bare feet, to have to stretch out his leg night and morning to the hammer of the roundsman who visits the gang, to submit to the curiosity of strangers who would be told, That man yonder is the famous Jean Valjean, who was mayor of M. sur M., and at night, dripping with perspiration, overwhelmed with lassitude, their green caps drawn over their eyes, to remount, two by two, the ladder staircase of the galleys beneath the sergeant's whip. Oh, what misery! Can destiny, then, be as malicious as an intelligent being, and become as monstrous as the human heart? And do what he would, he always fell back upon the heart-rending dilemma which lay at the foundation of his reverie. Should he remain in paradise and become a demon? Should he return to hell and become an angel? What was to be done? Great God, what was to be done? The torment from which he had escaped with so much difficulty was unchained afresh within him. His ideas began to grow confused once more. They assumed a kind of stupefied and mechanical quality which is peculiar to despair. The name of Romavi recurred incessantly to his mind, with the two verses of a song which he had heard in the past. He thought that Romavi was a little grove near Paris where young lovers go to pluck lilacs in the month of April. He wavered outwardly as well as inwardly. He walked like a little child who is permitted to toddle alone. At intervals, as he combated his lassitude, he made an effort to recover the mastery of his mind. He tried to put to himself, for the last time, and definitely the problem over which he had, in a manner, fallen prostrate with fatigue. Ought he to denounce himself? Ought he to hold his peace? He could not manage to see anything distinctly. The vague aspects of all the courses of reasoning which had been sketched out by his meditations quivered and vanished, one after the other, into smoke. He only felt that, to whatever course of action he made up in his mind, something in him must die, and that, of necessity, 
and without his being able to escape the fact that he was entering a sepulchre on the right hand, as much as on the left, that he was passing through a death-agony, the agony of his happiness, or the agony of his virtue. Alas, all his resolution had again taken possession of him. He was no further advanced than at the beginning. Thus did the unhappy soul struggle in its anguish. Eighteen hundred years before this unfortunate man, the mysterious being, in whom are summed up all the sanctities and all the sufferings of humanity, had also long thrust aside with his hand, while the olive trees quivered in the wild wind of the infinite, the terrible cup which appeared to him dripping with darkness and overflowing with shadows in the depths all studded with stars. End of Book 7 Chapter 3